0: Perhaps one thing that's more important is really to understand the human psychology. Because at the end of the day, it is not a one single engineer who's doing something. It is a team effort. You need to work with people. You need to be a good people person. You need to be empathetic to others' pain. You need to, um, willing to accept and work with other people. Uh, that kind of, you know, the basic human quality. It is so important.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Puneeth. I got my co-host, David. Joining me today, what's new in your world? Oh,
2: well, I recently read a, an article about upcycling of NMC powder. And so it kind of goes with today's episode. But a big part of batteries is what do we do once they're dead almost and we can't use them in our phones or our laptops anymore. And so this paper goes over how we can take old NMC and then put it into new batteries with basically the same performance with just quicker fade, meaning that it won't last as many uh, cycles. And so that kind of leads us into today where we talk with Fred, who is a CEO of a uh, Caton, which is a battery company, mainly focusing on bringing knowledge from Asia to America. And so we talk about battery recycling and what they're doing as part of it and how the infrastructure will look like in the future. And so I think that we've talked before about what actually makes up a battery, but I think today we talk a lot more about how are we going to get to America being completely electrified and recycling. And he also does testing are really important steps on that process. And so maybe what was your favorite part of the episode?
1: Yeah, it was definitely, it's definitely a shift from kind of episodes we've done in the past where it is, for me, it was like this uh, shift in perspective and recognizing that other countries, especially in Asia, may have more expertise and experience in terms of battery testing, mass production of battery cells compared to the U.S. um, Because historically, a lot of that production happened, you know, globally or or outside of the US. And now it it's starting to shift into battery startups and even the likes of Tesla. Right. So I think it it was just very eye-opening for me that the US does have a lot to learn. You know, we're not number one in everything. And so that was kind of just that was really cool. And I think this, this episode really talked about like, what does battery testing infrastructure look like in Asia versus here? And, and it's just uh, a reminder that we have a lot of room to improve and grow. What about you?
2: Yeah, I know. On the same cord, it's just how it, progress differs between us and Asia as the involvement in industry of the government. And so Uh, In the US, it's very laissez-faire where there's a need, someone will meet it. Whereas in Asia, it seems like the government will do the dirty work in terms of building out infrastructure of the less profitable sectors to enable the more profitable sectors to rapidly progress. And so I thought that was a very interesting way and not saying one way is good and the other way is bad, but it just kind of shows how different approaches lead to very different results. But I think what Fred does really well is talks about how we can bridge the two. And so we may have two different systems, but we can take learnings from one and apply to the other and vice versa. And so I think that that was really interesting to talk about as well.
1: Absolutely. And Fred has that materials engineering background and, you know, he's way more involved in in the business now, obviously as as CEO, but he really gives great advice at the end of the episode in terms of how even as an MSc, you can be more of a well-rounded candidate so that you can drive impact in any industry that you work for. So yeah, without further ado, let's get into the episode.
2: Meta Material Inc. is a developer of high-performance functional materials and nanocomposites. Meta delivers previously unachievable performance across a range of applications by inventing, designing, developing, and manufacturing sustainable, highly functional materials. Meta is a fast growing company with a positive and committed work culture and a phenomenally talented workforce. Our employees are inspired to do exceptional and innovative work and are proud to contribute to the success of the company, and they are our greatest asset. Meta attracts people from all countries and cultures with over 35 spoken languages represented across all our teams. Meta believes that diversity drives creativity and innovation. With locations in Canada, the United States, the UK, and Greece, Meta is growing and is looking for new talented people to join the team. If you're passionate about doing your best work, making a difference, and having fun while doing it, apply to one of our open positions at metamaterial.com careers.
1: Hey everyone. So for today's episode, we are excited to welcome Fred Lee, CEO of Katon LLC. Fred was educated in both South Korea and the US, where he studied materials engineering, mathematics, computer science, and business. As CEO of Katon, Fred plans to ensure that the US plays a leadership role in the EV market through battery safety and sustainability. Uh, super glad to have you here, Fred.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me today. Appreciate it.
2: Well, yeah, I think that in the past few episodes, actually, we've talked about batteries on the show and the materials that make up a battery system. But one thing that we haven't really focused on is the end of line, and that's the testing the batteries to see the performance as well as the safety. And so could you give us, from Katon's experience in this area, how batteries are tested and why it's so important to do that? Well, before we talk about that, maybe I'll talk about the
0: Catan a little bit so that the audience yeah. understands the, uh, the business buckets that we are in. The uh, K-Town, we have uh, two business buckets. One is we are partnered with about a dozen and a half technology uh, partners from Asia, from Japan, from Korea, from China. We are centered around uh, testing equipment and services. But now we we expanded into the manufacturing machinery, uh, design of batteries, also the commercialization of it, pack, assembly, things like that. Also a little bit of material side as well. So that's bucket number one. We're bringing the technologies, the equipments, the know-how, the expertise that have been in Asia since the beginning of the lithium ion batteries two, three decades ago from Japan. As you know, it's Japan who started it. It went to Korea and then the China is really, took it to the moon. So it's very important for us to bring that know-how and experience into the United States, because unfortunately, as you know, the U.S. is at the end of this battery evolution. The electrification is so important now with the government pushing uh, for the manufacturing to be back on U.S. soil. It's important that we embrace our friends from Asia to kind of help us uh, to build the infrastructure in the United States. So that's our bucket number one. Bucket number two uh, is because of all that onshoring going on right now uh, from Asia, particularly from Korea. Because if you look at all the battery cell manufacturing at the mass scale, LG Energy Solutions, SK Innovation, SDI, Samsung SDI, those are all Korean companies who are joining up uh, with American OEMs, the GMs, the Force, Atlantis, and others uh, to really uh, enable the electrification uh, in the United States. So there's a, that vertical of the battery manufacturing know-how. There are a lot of companies in fact, if not all of them, they need to be come to the United States and uh, have a factories and businesses established. So our uh, bucket number two is also to help them. is foreign direct investment, right? So that journey of foreign direct investment into the United States is not so easy. You can imagine being a foreign student coming to the U.S. to study. That's difficult in itself. But if your company coming to the U.S., and uh, uh, starting a business and make it sustainable and be successful long term—that's that's a difficult chore to have. So we would like to help them to make sure that their journey to the U.S. is easy, simple, plug and play. So that's we are set to do that. So we are teaming up with the state governments uh, to help them to come to the United States
2: and. Your question uh, was, (laughs) what was it? I'm sorry. Yeah. So thank you for giving us the background on k I think that's really interesting. And just a side note is that, yeah, Tesla has partnered with Panasonic and a lot of the mature wet processing of batteries is mostly done by these Asian countries. And so I think it's really interesting that now with the mandate of manufacturing in America, we're bringing all this innovation and technology over. And so now that you've given us that explanation, could you explain how batteries are tested and why they're so important?
0: Right, right. So the the batteries are tested in, in every level of the form factor, right? If your battery cells, small pouch, you know, prismatic cell, uh, the cans and so on, there are a series of test methods that have been developed. In fact, uh, Sandia National Lab was uh, was sort of the grandfather of coming up with a standard, safety standards. And the rest of the world have their own standards and test methods and so on. The China actually has has the most advanced testing methods and methodologies. So since last year, earlier last year, we uh, embarked on uh, understanding of the infrastructure, the testing infrastructure of of the United States, especially for the larger format uh, batteries, because cells and, you know, those you can, equipment to test those are, you know, they are available. So you can do a nail penetration, you can do crush, thermal events, thermal runaway, the thermal shock test. The life testing, the cyclers, and so on. So the small ones are okay to do. So in fact, we have, you know, testing laboratories in the United States who can handle those. The big pain point, however, uh, is David, is for the larger format. So you look at, for example, if it's modules and skateboards themselves, we sat down with so many hundreds of, of stakeholders in the United States, the OEMs, the battery manufacturers, you know, these safety standards, safety tests, It's also called the abuse test, Mm -hmm. because you need to abuse it. You need to push the envelope of the operational condition to see what happens in an abnormal situation. It's going to catch a fire. It's going to explode, things of that nature. So the abuse test is a safety test, right? So it's important to have that. A UL uh, also has that uh, aspects of their testing protocols. Uh, The DOT has it also, the transportation side. Uh, The UN also has uh, some of those testing protocols. DOT uh, obviously has them. The problem is that we simply do not have the testing infrastructure for those larger format batteries. For example, if you have a Tesla, you know you need to drop that big, you know, uh, skateboard. Right? It's one of the tests they have to do. You have to crush them. You have to do a thermal event. Uh, to do that, you need what's called the bunkers because you know you will have an explosion, you will have a catch fire, so on and so forth. The testing infrastructure is lacking in the US. So what people do now, that's a huge pain point. Uh, in the United States, as far as we know, there is only about two or three facilities that can accommodate that. And we sat down with the president of another of largest uh, battery manufacturer, uh, the name that you know well, they have manufacturing in the Midwest. So to do those testing, they have to drive all the way up to Canada. The the companies that are in California, the electric vehicle OEMs, the new ones, they have to drive all the way to Texas for these type of testing. So we need to have more infrastructure. We need to have more testing facilities for a larger format. So that's a concern. And uh, that's why we have an initiative within k town to educate uh, the audience and so on. Because, you know, we can you know, we already hear the incidences of catching fire, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, today I was talking to somebody, they're making a second life battery as an ESS, and then they're putting it in a part of the grid. And it happened to be a nearby somebody's house uh, at a residential area. And now they are saying that don't put that, you know, ESS in my backyard, because I've seen them, you know, catching fire. So it's so important for the electrification industry to really take it know, smooth transition and uh, have have the uh, consumers embrace it without Mm -hmm. having to concern about the safety. We need to test them, right? So that's where we are in the U.S. and uh, we need to ramp up.
2: So you mentioned a lot of safety standards and to break that down, it basically comes down to a few factors. You have to penetrate the cell to make sure that if it shorts, like what happens and you have to crush the can to see how much pressure can do and all these other things. But I think an interesting note and something you can touch on more is that there's different standards between a single cell and a pack like he's talking about, and it has to pass both. And then shipping is a whole nother issue. And so maybe could you elaborate on when we have like, and we're trying to scale up to all these cells produced in America, what does the bottom line look like on terms of how many out of a thousand cells, how many do we need to test for each plant And then how does that scale up and so what is like the final effect of like if we want to make an electrified fleet in america what does that actually look like for us as consumers
0: well that's a good question and i don't know whether i have a you know a single canned answer for that because every oem if you look at the uh, instead of looking at the electric vehicle the battery side of it let's look at the automotive industry automotive industry been around for 100 years so they have in the automotive industry already have a set protocol for testing for quality, right? So there are two uh, largely different uh, categories of a testing. One's called the uh, design validation, and the other one is called the production validation. So during the design phase of it, make sure your design is done to the specification that takes care of the, stat- the safety, the performance, the reliabilities, and things of that nature. So that has to be done during the design phase as a DV, if we call the design validation test. And how often, how many cells out of a thousand cells, that's all up to the each individual uh, OEMs to, to have what is your own criteria, your own uh, set of bars uh, that you establish as a quality system. The production side is the same thing. You know, how many samples you're going to pull out of how many production units, right? So those, I, I cannot, you know, uh, mention exactly what The quantity of it is, but you know, those standards are already protocols are already in place because of nonetheless it's an electrical electric vehicle, it is an automotive. So automotive industry has a very good uh, system of ensuring the quality, safety, the
1: reliability. So you mentioned like the buckets, right? That that focuses on, and they're related to kind of bringing the knowledge base in in asia and the expertise kind of to the us so i was just wondering you know what are some of those generally the the differences in in the ways companies in the us operate versus in asia and kind of like in specifically with the battery industry
0: well the thing is uh right now the mass production side of the battery uh, industry is all done by foreigners at this point right It's, it's lg it's a samsung it's sk those are the ones who are actually putting all the batteries and panasonic for that matter right uh, are the ones uh, that are putting the batteries into the electric vehicles right now. The U.S. side, we work with uh, quite a few of the startups. Uh, so, U.S. is a nation of startups. So, <laughs> and, uh, we have too many smart people, uh, you know, develop something in the university labs and then they go off, go off and then they start your own company. So, and then they are fully backed by all the investments. So. You know, it's exciting to see all those startups starting out, you know, with a, a lot of innovations and so on. But what's lacking is the know-how to take it to the next level of mass production, for example, so the commercialization aspects of it. So one thing is to make it in the lab, but being able to make it in the production and compete with these giga factories. Right. So unless they get into a very specific category of the batteries and the mobility industry, being able to compete with the gigafactories, that's going to be a difficult thing. So one of the things that we are trying to do is also, another of the partners that we have from Japan, the group of uh, scientists and engineers who are, the, in fact, the inventors with the batteries at NEC, for example. They are the ones who have developed the uh, uh, Nissan LEAF battery systems and so on. So we also want to bring that expertise to enable are uh, startups to be able to take it to the next stage in the uh, commercialization.
2: And so why do you think it's important to understand an industry from a global perspective? Obviously you can cut down time and research, but what do you think like the most important factors are of being able to take learnings from Asia and take it to these startups? And like, what does that result for the startup at most?
0: Well, it's gonna accelerate them, right? So they do not have to go through all the uh trial and error if there's some good teacher uh can teach you how to you know sprinkle some magic dust on your on your recipe then you know you will get to the next stage faster and faster and faster uh, because we need to ramp up we already have a cell shortage for sure i can give you an examples of you know all these giga factories you know they they cannot make it fast enough so it's important to help the U.S. side, especially the startups, to be able to go to the commercialization quickly. And uh, also in terms of the machineries to make batteries, unfortunately, U.S., not only the battery side, but U.S. has thrown a baby with the bathwater in the 80s and 90s. We really do not have a lot of manufacturing infrastructure. We have to import almost 100% of the machineries to build batteries uh, from foreign countries uh, right now. China, obviously, um, but you know the stance that we right now U.S. has against China, that we are already seeing that impact on bringing technologies from China. Japan, although they started it, you know the price couldn't compete with, say, the the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Chinese. So there's a lot of focus on Korean machine builders right now to be able to build uh, lines uh, for the battery manufacturing in the U.S. So that's kind of you know how the agents can help. And you know, these countries are allies of US. So they're very much willing to help and onshore to the United States.
1: And so I know you mentioned you you brought up the infrastructure side. So I want to dive into that a little bit more. I know you mentioned like companies in California have to travel to Texas. So what are kind of those like next set of obstacles? That maybe from the materials engineering standpoint or even just like the business standpoint or that this industry is facing that prevents us from like scaling up and, you know, having that that stronger infrastructure within the U.S. or maybe more facilities for, for testing, for example. So
0: I think it's a two different things. Is that in, Let's look at the infrastructure for manufacturing is one thing, but infrastructure for testing is a, is a separate, right? So I think a lot of this quality, the U.S. is a little different from... Other nations around the world where we really leave it up to the industry to develop infrastructure, right? Uh, For example, the peripheral infrastructure, just like testing, for example, right? It's a little different in Asian countries and some of the other, some more uh, uh, planned economy, if you will. The governments step in to build uh, this type of infrastructure for you so that the industry can focus on developing and making and uh, manufacturing. They do not have to go out and build their own testing facility. The government will come in and provide the testing facility for you uh, in terms of subsidies and so on and so forth. So that type of infrastructure is very well established, for example, uh, countries like Korea. And Korea is also very much in a planned economy. The government leads where they need to go as a country, especially so much depending on export, so the government is the conductor, right? Whereas in the United States, it is completely the government doesn't even want to step in because that's the commercial space. That I think is the part of the problem because when it comes to a uh, infrastructure, the R and D, the testing, you know, those are not the profit centers for the companies, right? Those are the you know auxiliary functions that companies needs to have, but it's not a profit center the companies tend not to invest on those unless it's completely necessary. Unless somebody is twisting your arm, the you know, industry is like, you know what I mean? So they, they can, so we have to rely completely on the commercial side, commercial sector or the private sector for the testing. So, you know, all those names, the TUVs and the intertext, uh, you know, so on, and so forth that are providing those uh, testing. The problem is some of these abuse testing are not as the profitability for those type of testings are not really there for testing labs to establish themselves as an abuse testing facility. It is not as often uh, needed because it may be needed in the design validation cycle. So it's not something that if they buy a huge vibration table, that's going to cost them $3 million that fits the entire skateboard. But they can only shake it maybe once every Every day, if if that often, so they tend not to get into that side of the business from a commercial testing industry perspective. Meanwhile, the companies do not want to spend that much money for testing on their own. You can imagine, right? If they don't have to, then why do they want to do that? So that's the that's what the problem is. The okay. you know U.S. is completely different, you know, way of thinking, the philosophy. The government says you know they can you know uh, have grant programs and whatnot to help the entrepreneurs and the industries to grow. But you cannot imagine US government setting up a testing lab. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that just one is <laughs> not gonna happen. I mean, we have a we have a federal laboratories, right? We have federal labs who uh who provide, but they are not a commercial sector lab. They are not a commercial labs. You cannot send samples to Sandia and ask them to test it and then give us a you know, stamp of approval, right? They're more R&D of an R and D arm of the government. So That's a little bit different. You know, looking at ASTM, uh, SAEs, I mean, those are typical test uh, standard organizations. Those are private organizations in the United States. ASTM is not a government-driven, right? The American national standard is ANSI, A-N-S-I, right? And those testing methods are all adopted from the ASTM developed test methods or SAE test methods. Those are all industry-driven. Whereas all the other countries, look at Germany, it's DIN. That's a national standard. They actually develop. If you go to Japan, it's a JIS. That's a, that's a government led, uh, standard organization. Korea, KS, same thing. You go to China, it's a GB standard. So U.S. is quite different in that approach of the government's role in, uh, developing an, ind- uh, developing, a economy. So, but now with a new industry, Government is rather slow moving in, but government is spending money to build the infrastructure such as charging stations, right? So, and then we want to have all these companies come over start manufacturing in the United States. It's like building a brand new subdivision, but we are building it without hospitals, police, or schools.
1: So what do you see as that, like, solution? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you might not see that the U.S. government kind of getting involved like super quickly or it might take a while so what do you see as the the solution more private companies focused on the the testing space or or what so there are testing laboratories testing houses it's called the tic industry testing
0: inspection and certification industry Uh, they're building up because you know we sat down with the oem in michigan they already have their own testing centers for batteries and so on but they already they told us you know, they're already at full capacity already, and you can imagine that how many you know EVs are coming out from GMs and Ford. Not many, and they've already spent millions of dollars building their testing facility. But it's already full. It's already saturated. So they have to go outside. So I, I think it has to be collective. I think it has to be a public and private effort together. Also, you know, the consumer side also have to kind of alert the industry or the public or the governments to say, hey, make sure that, you know, the electric vehicles are safe. You have to show it to us. So I think it's a lot of awareness that needs to happen. I don't think people, you know, testing is not very sexy, right? So nobody talks about it. And then some of these testings are, uh, you know, it's it's a fire, it's an explosion. so I think it has to be a concerted effort by the government, the industry, the public, all that, and I, you know, then you know, at at some point, you know, somebody has to fund this, right? Because the private industry is just not going to find it profitable enough to ramp up the infrastructure. So how can we do it? And you know, we have to be a little bit more. You know, government doesn't want to get into the private sector uh, business, but we have to find some middle ground here. I think otherwise, you know, we have to continue to drive to Canada. And then, you know, they actually test it (laughs) outside, so they're going to catch fire, the thermal events, it's all done outside, which we simply cannot do that. We have uh, in the United States, I mean, no matter how remote location you go to, you know, we have an environmental concerns and so on. So I think it has to be a concerted effort. It has to be, uh, we have to work together with the public sector
2: as well. So it sounds like there's a huge bottleneck and usually when you have a bottleneck, you can solve it through either making more infrastructure, which I think you've laid out very well, but you can also make testing faster or smarter. On that front, could you give us like maybe a rough estimation of how long testing takes now and are there developments or is it really just building out infrastructure to support the demand?
0: Well, on the safety side, there's a very good article that was written by, uh, a Dutch folks, uh, a couple of years ago, just comparing all the different types of abuse testing. There are series of abuse testing, right? So there's the environmental side, electrical, there's a the mechanical, there's physical, and then there is also the fire side. So the suite of testing, uh, it requires dozen and a half, uh, different test methods, test protocols. And, uh, some of these testing, these are abuse in nature. So in other words, they're mostly in physical tests. They're going to, Nail penetration, or they're gonna drop it, crush it, you know, tilt it, uh, so on. So these are type of testing that really does not take that much time. So there's no such thing as making it faster because you can penetrate a nail. (laughs) How can you? That really doesn't make you know. That's not gonna gain much of the efficiency that way. And I think the way that you know we're looking at it is just a minimum test that you must do internal short, you know, external short, the thermal events, the, uh, the corrosion tests, those are very basic environmental, physical, mechanical, electrical tests. So I don't think there's any way around it to make it smarter and so on, I, I, I don't think so. I think these are very fundamental uh, abuse scenarios that perhaps we need more than less. And the thing is, uh, you know, we can do at the cell level test, right? And then you have a module level and they have a pack level. So being able to, to do that at each stage of the production gate, if you will. So yeah, I'm not sure, David, how we can improve other than uh, building more facilities to do that.
2: Well, then the next question is, as we make advancements in batteries, for example, one of the main things we're testing for is what happens when it shorts. And so a main Innovation would be solid-state batteries, which have a physical layer to prevent shorting. And so as you see these new technologies come online, how do you see testing evolving? And do we need to make new infrastructure? Or how will that play out in America or Asia?
0: Well, if you look at testing, what testing is, you're trying to simulate a, a real world situation, right? So all these type of testing for the abuse scenarios, I don't think it's going to change no matter what kind of chemistry it is. You know, solid state folks can say, hey, this is safe, but you have to prove it. And only way to prove it is to test it and then show with the numbers and statistics that, yes, it is, you know, 30% safer, 50% safer. You need to have a data uh, from test. For sure, it'll be safer, everything, you know, the, All the technology that are coming up, the LFP side is safer. You know, the solid state is going to be safer. Uh, You have a different separator technology is now going to make it safer. So the safety is improving. But I'm not sure whether, you know, they were able to validate their claim with the numbers. So I don't think it's going to change. Just because we have a safer test, we have less testing. I don't think that works that way.
1: That makes sense. So I'm just curious, then, like, you know, you have the materials engineering background, and you're you're leading this company, you're very interested in the business side of things. So I'm just curious, kind of what motivated you to enter this battery industry, but but take it on from a new perspective, you know, and lead this company and bring that knowledge to the US. So I've been in the uh, testing TIC industry all my,
0: all my career after my school. I was with a testing equipment company, testing labs, and uh, I was also involved in business development in Asia uh, from Korea to China to Japan and uh, Asia. I uh, also worked in uh, 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 in Europe for a couple of years. And uh, we knew that the battery electrification is going to happen um, sooner or later. Obviously, in the United States, the battery electrification was started about a decade ago, as you all know, right? So that we had had a volt for a long, long time. I mean, the first battery factory, uh, the LG Chemical built in Holland, Michigan, was as a decade ago. Uh, we just didn't take off. It was going to take off and then nothing happened. But this time, I think it's for real. Uh, so just looking at the temperature between uh, last year and this year is so different. Uh, now, not only the, a lot of OEMs are pledging to say they already planned the uh, EV transition with all their models that are coming up. Tesla doing wonderful. Even the, even the Japanese, right? I mean, they're so, they're betting on this uh, hybrid so long, but now they are also uh, transitioning into the full uh, electric vehicles and Toyota saying that they're going to have it. You know, it's a, it's a great time for the electrification. And the fact that, you know, my background of an engineer, but also businessman, but my ties to Asia, so I have a lot of uh, connections in Asia, and then, um, you know, being able to bring them over to the United States, I think that's very exciting. But at the end of the day, we need to do this for uh, for the United States. And that's so important that, you know, although I'm an immig- immigrant myself, but my children are Americans, so I'm <laughs> doing it all for them. But... Uh, so it's an exciting time and uh, that's how I w- how I was able to get into the uh, uh, to the battery uh, vertical.
2: Maybe while we're like zoomed out to Keton and your vision and the reason why you joined, maybe we can also talk about the other bucket, as you said, with the battery repurposing and recycling battery materials. And so maybe you can just start us off by saying why is recycling batteries important? and then what role will Keton play in that uh, life cycle?
0: Yes, uh, I think one of the uh, the issues in terms of the circular economy and sustainability it is material recycling, right? I mean, United States, you know, we do not have the, all the raw materials coming from China, Australia, and you know, now it's Canada. Ontario is uh, is booming because of that. Uh, a lot of companies are finding homes in in Ontario for uh, the material side of the battery industry. So it's important. I mean, even now, even now, I think the reason that we cannot make batteries fast enough, but you know, enough quantities already, is because of the shortage of the raw material. So it's important that uh, that we recycle every single batteries. So California EPA uh, last year has gone through a long study or. Uh, The industry leaders got together to kind of come up with a way to make sure that the recycling is done correctly. Uh, If you look at currently the anything in the battery side of recycling, it actually costs money for people to recycle. If you have your batteries from your notebook you want to recycle, you have to go pay money to do that. So in order to create that more of a recycling you know, the government has to look at it from a different perspective. You have to make sure that it, it is profitable. It is commercially viable uh industry to have it recycled. So in the United States, there are quite a few names that are uh, front runners in the battery lithium ion battery recycling. It's not the lead acid, you know, all the small, I mean, that industry existed for a hundred years. Uh, now it's a lithium ion batteries and, you know, the fact that each skateboard has, you know, Ten thousand times more batteries than your notebook, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's very important to have that all recycled. The thing is, in the uh, in the lithium-ion battery recycling, one of the big pain points is the fact that you know these are uh, you know once you, in the first step in recycling is shredding. You have to shred them, right? So you have to uh, you have to you have to get it all to the cell level or module level, and then you have to go through the shredder. And uh, the problem is, if you shred them. <laughs> you're creating an internal short already, <laughs> you're doing a real time nail penetration there. So it's going to catch fire. It's going to explode and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, we have a technology where we can rapidly discharge and then terminate. So these are type of technology that are available from Asia already. So as you can imagine, they've been doing this for two decades. So the level of expertise, the level of sophistication uh, is there. Uh, we just need to adopt it uh, in the United States, uh, all these many of these different recycling companies they just have a very unique approach to to their operation. that's because they're all startups and then you are if you're a startup, you have to differentiate from other competitions so the investors back you instead of them. So everybody has a different, you know, methodology in terms of the recycling. So we're still at that stage, right? And everybody is kind of running. And then, you know, who's going to win? The time will tell. Uh, but until then, everybody's going to approach in a different fashion uh, simply because of the startup, the the investment, that structure. So they simply cannot just copy what being done overseas for two decades they have to come up with their own strategy they have to come up with their own technology so then if you think about it like it's like you you are reinvent you're reinventing the wheel here in a little bit because you have to claim your unique technology so i think that's a, a little bit of a uniqueness uh, in the us because we are all entrepreneurs right we all wanted to do things uh, in a different way but uh, recycling that's very important so because of that, David, I think one thing that I, I think is that in the, I'm sure you know this very well, in the battery life cycle, right? We always talk about the first life batteries, where the batteries come out from a vehicle, that battery is still 80%, 70%, the health is left in it, right? So you want to use it for the second life application and so on and so forth. But I, I think, you know, we have a much bigger need to just recycle right away because you do not want to have that uh, raw materials sitting on somewhere as a second life battery, I think, you know, I think the industry is in, in such a need, whether they need to go from the new battery, recycle right away again and again. So we're going to have to waste that life left in as first first ba- first life batteries. But that's simply because we do not have the raw materials in the US. And then I don't think we're going to go and do much of a harvesting in the lithiums and so on. So, And so
2: when you recycle a battery, I think uh, first Thought that would come into mind for many people would be, could we tell the difference between pristine and recycled material? Well, I think some some companies claim that the recycled materials are better.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that that's uh, that's beyond my uh, expertise. I, I'm not uh, in that refinery aspects of
2: uh, raw material extraction.
0: We evolve all the way up to the black powder, but after that, we limited it up to to the uh, actual the chemists.
2: I think from research I've read it's basically like it's all due to like chemical potentials within the cell and so once if you can separate all the materials out and then just redo it there's not any any energy like in the NMC it's because the NMC has a reaction with the other side and so if you can create like your pristine separate out all, all the ingredients then you can just redo it and it's good as new and so that that was also my understanding from what I've read, and so just checking with you. Yeah, that's what that's my
0: understanding as well. Yeah, you can recycle. I don't know whether you can recycle perpetually,
2: uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. And I think that's a really interesting point. And so. I think that for NMC specifically there's a lot of demand for high use and where energy density is very important such as cars and then you're talking about second life batteries where energy density isn't as important and so we can see the rise of other types of batteries that may not have a that may have a bigger footprint but could last longer under less stress and so from caton's perspective you're going to be having a flood of all these different chemistries eventually how can we produce infrastructure to recycle all the different types of chemistries? or how does the next 20 years look like in terms of how Kton will approach the recycling and reusability of batteries?
0: again, you know our our job from a technology partners that we have from age of in terms of recycling is in that rapid discharge aspects of it uh, because everything else is an actual you know on infrastructure, right? It's a refinery. Of chemical factories, either it's hydro or pyro metallurgy. That's a that's a technology that already exists, right? It's not something new. Uh, it's just the the mechanics of how we recycle is more important. And different different chemistries, as you said, that's up to the chemists at the at the refinery side how to do it. But I think you know those are those are not new technologies, right? So the actual refining aspects of uh, black powder. So K-Town, the technology that we're bringing in, whether it is a testing, obviously testing is, you know, chemistry agnostic. Doesn't matter what format, what chemistry, it's the same type of abuse scenario that you're going to have to run through. So the equipments that we are providing, it doesn't matter what chemistry. As far as the manufacturing, the chemistry really doesn't matter because it is all depending on the, whether it is prismatic, you know, it's pouch and so on, that aspects of it. Obviously the, you know, front end of the mixing the, you know, wet chemistry, the dry electrodes, those are gonna change. And in terms of, so there's testing, there is the manufacturing machine. So anything that's machinery wise, other than the, the chemistry aspects of the mixing, the front end of the, you know, the manufacturing of the cells, that's gonna change. But the rest is the same, right? <laughs>
1: I'm just wondering, then, Fred. Like, what are you most excited about? You know, down the line, based on all this, like, involvement, in your experiences within the battery industry, maybe working with startups. Like, what what is most exciting to you? Whether that's revolving around battery testing or just the battery industry as a whole. What's most exciting is that. The, finally, the U.S. is turning into the electrification.
0: A lot of government side, uh, not only the federal government but the state governments, they're very excited about the electrification. Everybody's fighting. If you if you look at the map of where all the cell factories are going, all the EV factories are going. I mean, it's really it's no longer a one state that's you know hub for automotive. It is almost all states, other than maybe Colorado or you know Missouri or somewhere there, but. Uh, even from, you know, California to Nevada to Oklahoma, Phoenix, go down to Florida, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, you know, Canada, you know, Kentucky, just, you know, Tennessee, Ohio, you know, Indiana, Michigan, it's all, everywhere is, uh, is an electrification epicenter now. So the entire, entire United States will be benefiting from all the job creations from the new factories that are coming into the States you know, we'll have all these uh, people benefiting from the evolution to the electrification, not only the electric cars, but anything else, right? Anything that's mobility-wise. So it's an exciting time, but again, we have to make sure that it is safe.
1: Absolutely. I love that. And maybe just to wrap up this episode, so our audiences, uh, materials, engineering students or just enthusiasts as a whole. So since you have that background, but you also have Very diverse background. What is maybe one thing you would like our listeners to take away from from your career and experiences? Maybe one piece of advice.
0: (laughs) I don't know whether, um, well, you know, I'm an engineer, but, you know, I'm uh, now squarely a businessman. So looking back, uh, what would I have done differently knowing where my career led to this point now is understanding more of the finance side of the business. For example, I think engineers we are, you know, we we know how to calculate, we know how to model, we know how to simulate, we know how to run tests and designs and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to be um, a successful business person, you really need to understand uh, the finance side of the the business. And perhaps one thing that's more important is really to understand the human psychology, because at the end of the day. It is not a one single engineer who is doing something. It is a team effort. You need to work with people. You need to be a good people person. You need to be empathetic to others' pain. You need to be um, willing to accept and work with other people. Uh, that kind of, you know, the basic human quality, it is so important. As an engineer, you think that you are the smartest person in the room, but that's a wrong attitude, right? Nobody likes smart people. Smart asses. <laughs> so, having that human quality, I think is one thing that I, uh, if, if you ask me now, what's the most important thing then when I look at somebody, it is not about their brain power, it is about their uh, people power. For sure.
1: And I think that almost ties like hand in hand, right? Being able to understand someone else's motivations, like that's a reason for why you should learn the finances, right? Like if you're an engineer trying to recommend a decision is made and it goes up to the business or the upper management, then you have to think about cost savings or revenue generation and things like that. So that's kind of maybe what you're trying to get at too, but I totally agree that empathy is a huge, huge, you know, characteristic that's required to be successful no matter what you do.
0: Right. And then, you know, again, the, uh, the behavioral psychology, you need to understand how, how people behave. As a, as a business, you need to understand how the consumers behave, for example, right? Because it's not because your, your thing is better, technically, it doesn't really mean that's what people want. So understanding that psychology, uh, the behavioral psychology, I think those are very, very important as well. I mean, you can hire a CFO, right?
1: <laughs> for <laughs> so, sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Fred. This was uh, very enjoyable and I learned a lot about the U.S. space and the battery industry as a whole worldwide. So really appreciate your time.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you again for inviting me.
1: As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.